I'm Jody Butts, and welcome to At Risk. The most difficult part of getting risk right is understanding what you're seeing. Sifting through the cognitive biases and heuristics at play in order to see an accurate picture of what's actually happening around you is no easy task. And the more something is around, like COVID or climate change, the more we become inured to it, making the situation even harder to appreciate. Andrew Potter has some concerns and he's put in the work to test and verify them. He's listened to us on social media. He's done the research and analysis. He's considered the views of leading scholars who hold varied views. And Andrew's verdict is, we are in a state of entrenched decline. With that conclusion, you might dismissively think that In addition to being a best-selling author, associate professor at the Max Bell School of Public Policy, and former journalist and editor-in-chief of the Ottawa Citizen, that Andrew is merely a cynic. But on that, you would be mistaken. Rather, he is an optimist who has carefully collected the receipts on the negative trends that so many of us grapple with every day and methodically set them out in his new book, On Decline. Andrew didn't write the book to be right. He would actually prefer to be wrong. He wrote On Decline to sound the alarms that our pathways to shared progress need rebuilding. And that rebuilding process starts with making the case for how bad things really are. Thank you for joining me, Andrew, and welcome to At Risk. Uh, Thanks for having me. So this decline you write about, is it permanent or is there hope for a reversal at some point? Um, well, uh, that's a good question. I mean, uh, you know, as I say, where there's, where there's life, there's hope. Um, and, and I think, um, I don't want to say, and I say at the end of the book, I say, look, you know, the, the future is not written. Uh, you know, there are no, there are no facts about the future. Um, what I'm trying to do is point to certain trends that um, I see sort of, you know, working uh, and, and mutually reinforcing one another that um, are going to be very hard to, uh, to sort of undo. And I think they're going to have to play themselves out. Um, there are some, there are some ways in which um, decline might, might reverse itself. Um, uh, but uh, I think uh I'm certainly suggesting that there is a long-term trajectory we're into, uh, we're into right now that has um, a fair amount of uh, path dependency at work that's going to be hard to reverse. And this may sound like a silly question, but just to kind of be clear, what are we talking about as declining? Like, is it civilization, our species, what? I want to be clear, right? When I when I talk about decline, um, this isn't uh, this isn't a Hollywood thriller, right? This isn't um, you know the day after tomorrow uh, with you know suddenly the continent freezing over overnight, and it's it's not it's not the moon exploding, and it's not aliens arriving. It's not it's not any one big event. Um, wh- what it is is it's a story of a number of um, uh, phenomena or circumstances all coming together 
and preventing us from um, uh, progressing in the way we always kind of thought progress progress would work. And so when I talk about decline, what I'm suggesting ultimately is happening is that our abilities to solve the problems we face, um, which largely amount to uh, collective action problems, um, our capacity to, to confront, recognize, confront, and resolve those collective action problems are in decline. And it, basically meaning it's getting harder and harder for us to, solve, uh, to, sol- to resolve the problems we face. And those problems are just going to build up. Uh, and they're going to keep getting worse. They're just going to keep festering. And uh, I think that eventually um, we're going to look back and think, you know, it's almost like a relationship where there's never any one minute uh, or moment in most relationships where you think uh, things have gone bad. But in a bad relationship, you you kind of can look back, you know, after three or four or five years, maybe you think, oh, you know, it's been a while since things were any good. And and I have a feeling that's sort of where we're headed right now. We're going to look back in this period and think, uh, you know, that was the last time things were actually uh, good. It's been kind of downhill for a long time since then. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned the relationship analogy because I was reminded of one of my own experiences, uh, which was I have Crohn's disease and I, I, I'm relatively healthy today, but I was quite ill in my 20s. And by the time I made it to a specialist, the specialist was like, why did it take you so long to get here? And, you know, part of the answer, <clears throat> not the full answer, but but a large part of the answer was, well, I just kind of got a little bit sicker each day. And I didn't realize how bad I was. I just kept normalizing the things I was tolerating every day. And that's really, to me, the scariest part of this book. And what I wanted to ask you was, how did you test your own perceptions then on your assessment of decline? Because really, you know, the heart of that, um, that, that reflection is it's sometimes hard to see what's happening all around us. Yeah. Um, so, so the book sort of starts with um, this this great meme that uh, that sort of started getting passed around in 2016 after David Bowie died, right? Where someone said, uh, or post, I think someone posted on Twitter, she said, um, "I'm not saying David Bowie was this you know alien life form holding the fabric of the universe together, but you know, look around you, right? Like you know, gestures wildly at everything." And you, you know, I, I loved it because because it, it it touched on a number of things, right? And including this idea we have that like things started to go wrong all at the same time, right? A whole bunch of things all seemed to go wrong. And it started to become almost this sort of like bit of cultural self-consciousness where, where at the end of each year, starting around 2016, people on, on social media and the newspapers would say, wow, that was like the worst year yet. Right. And the end of, and, and then 2017, yeah, worst year ever, 2018. Whoops. <laughs> it keeps getting worse. <laughs> and, and then when I got asked, to write a book about the pandemic. Of course, you're in the middle of a pandemic, so things aren't going very well. And and all I could think about was, you know, what if this is more than just like memes? What if this is, uh, what if we're actually like the people in ap- apocalyptic thrillers, right? I said earlier, this isn't apocalyptic thriller, but what, are, what if we're like those people who, who sort of don't really see the forest of the trees and we're actually in the middle of narrating something that's actually going on and we don't quite understand why. So, so what I tried to do was, was pull back a bit and, and articulate why I had this own sense of disquiet because, because my own sort of 
intellectual and, and passed a lot on, on this stuff is to, is to really downplay and poo-poo a lot of the sort of declinist uh, thinking. Um, in fact, I, I wrote a book 10 years ago that actually explicitly, you know, you know, pumped the tires of progress and said, you know, reason is, is everything, you know, we're going to figure it all out. And I started to feel that this wasn't the case. And so, so what I did was I tried to sort of work backwards from the social media um, narrative that we all need to sort of try and try and keep our distance from and see whether there are any actual processes or phenomena that were going on that might actually be, be worth taking seriously. And that's sort of what I try in the book, do in the book is sort of outline like the three or four things that I think are at work here that, 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 that go beyond just the sort of um, the, the Twitter sphere or, or what have you and, and are actually something that we need to pay, pay a bit more attention to. Okay, so let's dig into it. What is causing this decline? So it's a number of connected things. Um, the, f- the first is, I think, um, the, uh, the economic and uh, technological stagnation um, that has been in place in uh, our economy, Canada, um, the United States, but also the West in general, um, since, since the 1970s. Um, and, you know, that, that stagnation is sort of uh, well established. Why it's the case uh, is, is, less, is less well understood. Um, the economist uh, and sort of blogger and sort of all around sort of public intellectual Tyler Cowen wrote a wrote a uh, an essay about as long as my book um, ten years ago called the Great Stagnation where he kind of tried to articulate what was going on and what struck me about his argument was that he said look you, you know we had this idea that progress was like a ladder we had climbed right that in sort of around the eighteen hundreds we sort of figured it we figured the world out and now we kicked the ladder beh- out behind us and now we can keep sort of just Keep the, keep the progress, uh, you know, conveyor belt going. And he said, like, you know, what if, what if that's not the case? What if what actually happened is we stumbled upon, he calls it low-hanging fruit, right? I, I, I use a metaphor of a buffet, right? We stumbled onto this buffet of, like, fruit in the form of, um, or fruit and, you know, free food in the form of uh, a lot of free land and very cheap energy, uh, very dirty energy, but very cheap energy, and figured out ways of of connecting that to, uh, to, to machines, basically, electricity and, and fuel added to machines to, to um, generate um, economic growth. That's all stagnated uh, and has been in place for about 50 years. Now, what, what are the consequences of economic and technological stagnation? One of which is just simply life, life uh, start, starts to get, a, doesn't, doesn't keep getting better at the rate you're expecting. But it has, it has a slightly more pernicious um, cause as well. Or, or consequences as well, pardon me, which is that um, one of the things we know about economic growth, whatever, whatever you want to say about economic growth and whatever environmental damage it might do and so on, one thing it does do is it makes us um, better people uh, in the public sphere in the sense that it makes us more open to um, open to immigrants, open to diversity, uh, less risk averse, uh, more open to, uh, to, to risk taking and so on. And, and generally when you have this sense that life is going to keep getting better, there's going to be growth year after year. Um, everyone gets a little less anxious and stops looking at their neighbors with, uh, you know, a side eye or anything like that. When you do have economic uh, stagnation, the opposite occurs, right? People start to look at their neighbors a bit warily, start to get a little more suspicious of immigrants and diversity, and that generates um, political polarization. When you add into that, um, the, uh, the, the, when you, or when you pour onto that the fuel of um, the internet, social media in particular, and Twitter in particular, uh, which simply catalyzes and exacerbates these, you get uh, a self-reinforcing re- re- uh, system of political tribalization and uh, polarization that makes 
basically democratic politics um, quite difficult. And if we understand progress as essentially the um, capacity to resolve collective action problems that are, or solve problems that are in the public interest by sort of overriding people's private interests, this combination of, of basically economic stagnation, um, slow growth, um, political polarization, and increased tribalization is um, just preventing that. And it's a, it's a problem that's only going get, to uh, keep getting worse. I don't, I, don't see, I don't see any obvious ways in which that, that stops for now. So that's, that's the core of the argument. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that I was asking myself um, as I was reading, and you quite carefully unpack all of these trends, is that, is it our politics that are failing us? Or is it leadership that's failing us? Is there a difference between those two things? Uh, that, that's a good question, and, and I, think, uh, I think I would answer, and I'll qualify it, by saying it's, it's, it's the politics in the sense that it's the system. Uh, I actually don't think um, leadership um, is, is, is the issue here, because I think our leaders are caught up in institutions and patterns and processes and trends that, they, that we all dimly understand, and I don't think anyone's in, in much uh, capacity to control. Um, you know, and, and I and others in the punditocracy, right, have all sort of commented on, you know, uh, you know, um, the prime minister of Canada's failings or the prime minister or the president of the United States failings or what have you, right? And so and so should do what? But but ultimately, and, and, and you know, change can be made at the margins and improvements can be made in the mar- margins. But but ultimately, I think these are processes that um, are very very hard to control. And I think um, ultimately. Uh, our institutions have have um, I, w- I don't want to say they become unworkable um, because you, you don't want to be sort of you know uh, completely negative about this. But when when I look at um, you, you know there's an example that struck me yesterday, and it, it sounds it sounds crazy, but you know Jagmeet Singh was asked um, you know who he was cheering for in, in the CFL, and uh, he declined to answer. Right, he kind of hemmed and hawed. And it struck me as like, this is where we're at right now, right? Where a politician cannot even just say, a leader cannot just say honestly what, what he believes on something as completely innocuous as which sports team he supports um, because of fears that it will be used as a wedge issue or some kind of partisan attack or will alienate some degree of the electorate and so on. And, um, you know, you might want to say, well, that's always been the case. But, but it just seems to me that we've, we've ended the circumstance where the, the workings of our, our, our media and the, uh, the interaction between the media, political parties, and the electorate have become uh, almost like a, a Quentin Tarantino Mexican standoff where everyone's pointing a gun <laughs> at one another. And, uh, you know, no one's, no one's willing to put their gun down. And I think that's, that's, that's not something, like all collective action problems, it's not something that any one person or group is, is in any, any position to, um, to resolve on their own. I think that's very fair. Um, what I often pause on is that, generally speaking, Canadians actually agree on a lot of things. Um, even in the United States, you know, following Sandy Hook, Americans agreed on a lot uh, of elements of gun control that should be introduced. Um, <clears throat> but we don't, but it's, Somehow, somewhere in the, in the machine, as you say, um, even that agreement can't 
seem to be acted upon. And, you know, it's interesting that, 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 that you talk about the system because I think so often I personally will, will, will look to, to leadership. It's like, oh, well, the solution has to be, has to be leadership, but, but perhaps, uh, the time has run out on, you know, looking to, you know, one person or even a group of people, um, to actually solve, uh, for these big, big problems. Yeah. I, th- I think, I mean, one, one of the, um, the, the problems, um, you know, like let, let, let's, let's make, let's, so, so just so everyone's clear on this, right. You know, the problem with a collective action problem, right. And, you know, we're, we're probably all familiar with the toy problems, you know, in school, we now teach everyone about the prisoner's dilemma, right. Like two, two prisoners who are each, uh, or two people, suspects are each, you know, captured and given a deal where, you know, if you rat out the other guy, you'll get a better deal and so on. Right. And, in the structure of the system of the of the situation is always such that it's no matter what the other person does, it's always in your interest to defect from any kind of collective agreement and behave in your in your personal uh, what's in your personal interest. And these sorts of problems, and I sort of use the example of you know uh, roommates in uh, you know roommates in cleaning <laughs> dishes and so on, right? Is another really good example, right? Cases where it's always good to free ride off the efforts of others um, and defect yourself from any kind of collective collective agreement. Traffic's another one, right? Where um, no matter what anyone else does, um, it's always in your interest to sort of like bounce in and out of traffic in 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 a traffic jam, even though that ultimately makes everyone slower. And it's very hard to enforce these sorts of things, right? You can say, well, where's the leadership here, right? But, but when, when everyone has uh, their own private interests at work, it's very hard to sort of enforce a common interest. Um, and ev- even, even if you have a leader who, who wants to do something, right? And one of the problems we have, uh, and Francis Fukuyama has been doing a lot of work on this for the last few years over what, what he calls the United States, he calls it a vitocracy, which is that... In, in any complicated um, political system, right, one that has a number of uh, where there's where there's um, a balance of powers, uh, division of a division of powers, or what have you, and shared responsibilities, you can have any number of choke points or bottlenecks where it only takes one actor um, to step in and, and can prevent something from getting done for everybody, even if collectively everybody wants it done and it would be in the collective interest. And that's not something that even in a centralized system like Canada, where the prime minister has a lot of power or less so in the presidential system, that's not something that one leader can just walk in and just sort of like bang heads around, right? When you've got all of these countervailing powers in a system, uh, in any kind of vetocracy, it, it only takes one self-interested actor to, to, to sort of ruin things for everybody. And, um, I think that's one of the things that we're sort of realizing this ongoing narrative about Canada and the United States being places where it's very difficult to get anything done. Um, there, there's a very real reason for that. And it's not just simply a lack of, of political will. I think political will has become a, um, uh, a talking point that, that actually doesn't do a lot of work in our, in our understanding of what's actually going on. You referenced this great speech uh, by Kennedy, or, or, or at least maybe it wasn't a great speech, but this great phrase, the, the speed of freedom. Um, and so that is evidence that we used to be able to, to get things done and not to be nostalgic about it, but clearly something has changed because our systems, I mean, at least at a high level, you know, our democracies still have the same institutions, senates and checks and balances, et cetera. Yeah. Um, so what's what's changed and is there an opportunity to, to try and, you know, at least somewhat undo that? 
Yeah. So, so, so that phrase of Kennedy is that, that I, I kind of fell in love with. I got it out of a, a book I read recently about the, uh, the, the Apollo mission to the moon that sort of, um, you know, 50th anniversary was, was a couple of years ago. So this book's published. Now everyone's familiar with, with Kennedy's original, the, the, the big speech he gave at Rice Stadium, right? Where he says, you know, we will go to the moon, right? Because it is hard, right? He just sort of does this whole talking up the crowd. Um, but he gave a speech to Congress a year earlier when he was trying to convince them to fund the moon mission in the first place, the Apollo mission. And uh, he had this phrase, and I assume like Ted Sorensen wrote it or whatever, right? Where he says, you know, we, we, we will go to the moon with the full speed of freedom. And now speed was of the essence for him at the time because they were getting their butts kicked by the, uh, by the Soviets. Uh, the Soviets were the first into space, the first with the Sputnik, the first with the man in the moon, right? Uh, first the man in space, pardon me, first with the animal in space. They were sort of, there was this missile gap and this, this rocketry gap. So he, he, speed was of the essence for Kennedy at the time, right? He needed to push on this. But I love this way he, he talked about the full speed of freedom because he, he, he said, look, you know, a communist country, they can make people do stuff, right? They can, you know, forcibly corral resources and essentially like, like you know what call slaves right but like they can push things through but what freedom what, what a free people can do is consent right they can, can consent to collective action they can say look this is in all of our interests we're all going to make sacrifices we're all going to commit we're all going to move forward and this idea that, that that a free people can move forward with the full speed of freedom in a, in a way that sort of unfree peoples can't always struck me as like uh, you know I, I read it and i almost like teared up right i, I thought this is yeah. so romantic um, so, so what was different, right? What's different about then and now? Um, a lot of things. Uh, the main one being the Soviet threat, right? Mm. Um, the, the, the Soviet threat itself, uh, you, you know, served to um, focus people's attention, focus uh, people's minds, uh, and focus resources. Um, a, a, sec a second aspect uh, that, that cannot be neglected in this is that uh, Kennedy was killed, um, shortly thereafter. And there's a lot of people who believe that if Kennedy had lived, they never would have gone to the moon. Hmm. That um, the reason uh, they pushed through to the moon was because Kennedy had been, had, had, had been killed. And, you know, it was sort of seen as uh, important to like solving his legacy and so on. If he hadn't been killed, the politics would have taken over, Congress would have stopped funding and so on. But that, that's an open question. Um, but, but a third element of all this is that the world's a lot different today than it was 60 years ago. Uh, and our societies are. Um, one way it's a lot different is on the regulatory side of things. Um, and one of one of the elements in the book that I sort of try to pick up on a lot of, a lot of the book my book is just you know me sort of grabbing little bits and pieces from various writers that I kind of oh that's interesting. And th there's this 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 sort of computer engineer named J. Stores Hall who wrote a book called you know um, Where's My Flying Car which he self-published and put on Amazon has become this sort of like little cult, cult, uh, cult book amongst uh, sort of techie types. And he actually says, look, what Tyler Cowen calls the great uh, stagnation is actually the great strangulation. And it's not that we sort of like just ate up all the low hanging fruit and are looking now for sort of new, new forms of like cheap, tech, cheap, cheap fuel or cheap energy or what have you. It's that our whole system or institutions have, have congealed and, and, and become strangled by, by rules and regulations and, and, and choke points and other types of vetoes that sort of feed into this idea that Fukuyama has about there being a vetocracy. And so, so this is a long answer to your question, which is a lot has changed, right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's possible, I don't like to, I don't like to think of these terms, but, you know, if, if, if this sort of mild cold war with China we have going on right now um, becomes heats up and becomes a much a much more polar 
militarized and, and hostile type of Cold War. Um, maybe you'll see some sort of, of that focusing of attention and resources here in the West to solve our problems. That would be a positive outcome of, a, of an ultimately negative um, sort of geopolitical situation. But there is this deeper situa- uh, question, though, about whether um, just simply the, the amount of regulation and um, ch- uh, you know, bottlenecks we've built into getting things done uh, here in North America is, um, is, is, is un, un, um, can, be, can be undone or not, or whether it, it can be sort of... Um, can be fixed because I think it's 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 a problem and it's something we've seen with with the pandemic, which is just the inability to sort of push through a lot of things that science had 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 done. Yeah, one of the things that I often feel is missing from uh, our political discussions are clearly articulated goals. We didn't really have a goal with the pandemic as one example, and this is something Dan Gardner and I spoke about, we sort of defaulted to hospital capacity. Um, But there's nothing, you know, pre-written that hospital capacity is the right goal for, for a pandemic. I think largely that was influenced by the experience in Lombardy, Italy, where, you know, we were watching in horror as their system collapsed. Um, often, you're really just kind of trying to drive numbers down to to zero. But but we sort of kind of drifted off to, to hospital capacity. But or or even goals like we're going to put you know a uh, uh, man on the moon, and you know, and I think we see this across all sectors. I, I'm picking on politics right now, and and you know, it's it's something that is certainly being discussed, which is positive. So, you know, in the private sector context, we talk about, you know, it's being framed as purpose, but this idea, you know, it's more than just shareholder value. You have to look across all your stakeholder groups in the charitable sector. It's, you know, leading to extinction. You know, uh, we don't, we don't start a food bank and hope that the food bank, you know, has a great, you know, 50 year run. We, we, we start a food bank hoping we solve the problem right. of food insecurity, right? And, right. and in politics, you know, I mean, it's funny. We have, we have mandate letters. We, you know, uh, we have party platforms. There were red books. There's detailed platforms. There's more high level platforms, but, but goal setting and, and really pinning oneself to that kind of goal. Um, it across sectors just seems to be something that people are leery of doing today. And maybe it's that vitocracy or, or fear of being sort of canceled or, or lack of patience that, that drives that. I, I, I'm not sure. Yeah, that's a good question. So there's 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 the general question about sort of the West, which I sort of talk about in the book, and then there's also the the narrow question of Canada. Um, you know, I think I, I have uh, I. I I'll go back and listen to your, your conversation with Dan because he's always an interesting guy to to to, to listen to. And I, I, I agree. Um, in the early days of the pandemic, there were three things that, that shocked me and a lot of people, right, and probably you as well, right. There was there was the um, you know the the building of a hospital in in Wuhan in like three days, right, where they just yeah. sort of like started building one. There was um, there was what happened in Lombardy, which is just simply a, which seemed to be just absolute chaos and uh, the social breakdown of the, of the systems. And then there was the um, satellite photos of uh, Iran digging mass graves in Qom. Um, yeah. All of which just sort of went like, what the heck is going on here, right? Um, and and uh, like, I'm one of those people who kind of slept, walked through the pandemic until, you know, <laughs> until, until that stuff started happening. I was like, oh my goodness, like this is actually going to get serious. Um, and I, I'm inclined to give 
everybody a bit of a pass for those early days. Um, you know, right up to, up to and including the, the world, the world health organization. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, fog of war stuff that goes on. What, what strikes me though, is as a little more disturbing. And I, and I agree with you that we have trouble focusing here in Canada in particular. I mean, it seems that every time, you know, something goes wrong, everyone, somebody calls for a national strategy on something, right. But, but Canada is actually a country that's very bad at executing national strategies. Um, partly just because of the nature of the country, partly because of our, our, our institutions. Um, but, but I agree with you that we, we had trouble sort of focusing on any kind of goal. Um, but, but, and the one that struck me that we didn't do a very good job on was um, the, the whole testing and tracing aspect of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. uh, because when, when the pandemic sort of started, there were, there were these really good pieces that came out about, you know, what, what South Korea had done and what Taiwan had done and so on. And I had this, I guess, highly naive view that what was going to happen was um, teams of, of, of Taiwanese and uh, South Koreans were going to like sort of fan out across the globe and visiting all these countries where the pandemic was arriving. And they would give you like South Korea in a box or Taiwan in a box, right? They would say, here's the app, right? Here's how you test trace nice. Like here's you like I, I really thought that this is just how they were going to do it, right? There was like this 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 plan that they would just hand people, right? With like an app. And and I remember kind of like, you know, I, I, obviously it was completely naive and kind of crazy, right? But but even setting that aside, what struck me is just how in a country like Canada, everybody is hell-bent on learning um, every lesson independently. Um, and, and I can give you one example, right? Which is that here in here in Quebec now, Quebec quite quite notoriously had a couple of very bad first and second waves, right? Um, Norman Specter, the, the pundit, you know, kept calling Quebec the, the class dunce of the first and second wave. Uh, but Quebec did something extremely uh, good in its third wave, and by the time the vaccine came out, it set up an amazing book of vaccine portal. Right, you could go into Click Sante, um, book a vaccine, and it would automatically book your second vaccine for you, and it would, you know, tell you where to go and when, and you show up and did it. Meanwhile, you know, two hundred kilometers away in Ontario, uh, <laughs> a Twitter account called Vaccine Hunters is, you know, frantically, you know, pulling information about where vaccines are available, and people are, are like, I had friends in Toronto tearing up to Acton or driving to like Sarnia or whatever to get vaccinated, right? And what, what, I, what, what continues to make me crazy is, you know, why didn't Ontario just ask for like the source code of the ClickSante website and like change everything in English and, you know, build the website, right? Like, and again, I know I sound completely crazy and naive about this, but it's like, if federalism is not about, you know, experimentation and learning from, you know, and sharing best practices quickly, you know, what's the point of it? And I remain completely surprised that this kind of thing um, went on in, in this country, uh, you know, well over a year into the pandemic. Yeah, I do find that aspect really challenging as well. And it may be that, you know, one of the things we have to look at is, are there um, governance tables or governance systems that actually support that kind of sharing, right? right, um, right. Uh, because I do think there was just like a huge coordination problem. Like, yeah. it's shocking to me that, you know, the Maritimes can have such a different experience than another province when we do have a federal public health agency. I would have thought a little bit of the purpose behind having a federal public health agency would be to kind of, you know, uh, lift everybody up, not, not, not average out to something negative, but lift everybody right. up. Um, and 
Um, so, so I, I do share that, that, that view, um, of the pandemic, but I also see a lot of wins in, yeah. in, in the pandemic I, and collective action, you know, wins, um, you know, just even, you know, all of us locking down, you know, I, I often think, you know, uh, today when, when we're recording, you know, there's all these stories of, you know, anti-vax mobs, um, dogging, um, uh, the prime minister's, you know, campaign. Um, but we were able to effectively lock down and bring those numbers down. And um, we were able to, uh, even though there is some unrest about masking, we mostly mask, like most places I, you know, I, I certainly enter, you know, people are are wearing masks. And so there, there's sort of this like, I, I, and I also talked about this with Mark Kingwell. I can't actually sort out my thoughts on the pandemic. I see so yeah. many wins, but I definitely, you know, contact tracing, uh, whether it was at the border or just in terms of community spread is a, is a great example of something that we just couldn't seem to get lift off no. on. Um, you know, for, for, for a variety of reasons. So, so let, let, let me take the conversation this way then. Like, is anybody right? Like, you know, you talk about sort of the enlightenment and, and reason and how reason, you know, has been a big part of our sense of progress and our pathway to progress. You know, is there a right way to do this? And is it about sort of persuading those that are wrong or do we have to hit some sort of rock bottom where we, you know, define, you know, new architecture to, to progress? I'll, I'll take two seconds to just close off our conversation about pandemic. Cause I think you said something interesting at the end there about there being wins. Yeah. Um, and this is something um, I have to be constantly careful of. And I, I tried to be in the book, but, but probably made some mistakes in that um, on the one hand, I think there are lessons we need to learn very quickly in the pandemic. And if, if we're slow to learn these lessons, people can die, right? So, so and, and failing, failing to learn lessons and implement them is, is, is uh, a dangerous thing, and governments really need to be on top of this. But at the same time, um, again, I'll, I'll, I'll quote Tyler Cowen again because he's sort of like a bit of a guru for me on this stuff. But he, he's been saying since the start, right, stop moralizing about the pandemic. And by that, he, he basically meant, look, um, the right policy responses, the wrong policy responses uh, are not going to be decided in six months, a year, year and a half, two years, probably three, four or five years down the line. Right. Um, and, and I, I think that's something I need to keep in mind a bit, right. Is that mm. ultimately, um, you know, uh, who, who made the right decisions and, and, and uh, what were the right calls were so on. We're still, we're still a long way from understanding just not just the vectors of transmission and so on, but ultimately what the right policy responses were. So I think that's something that um, even though, even as you and I sit here and moralize about the pandemic, right, it's probably worth sort of having a blinking light in the background going, stop moralizing about the pandemic, right? As sort of a warning to us all. I love that, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Um, on the bigger question um, about, you know, reason and, and enlightenment and, and is anybody right? Uh, so, so I'm like a philosopher by training, right? Like I have a PhD in metaphysics, uh, which uh, for all you kids out there is not uh, not a road to riches. So you know, don't, don't uh, you know, who would have thought, right? Metaphysics, not, not, not in demand. Um, but what, what training in philosophy gives you is ultimately um, a, a basic sense of optimism. 
That is optimism in, in this sort of sense that Aristotle had, which is that um, the world is understandable uh, and manipulable and um, predictable. Why? Because the world is a rational place and we are rational beings. And that, so there's a sort of mapping on, on this sort of Aristotelian view that happens between the way the world works and the way the, the human mind understands it, right? And so you can, you can predict and you can, once you can predict, you can manipulate and so on. And, and that gives you an optimism, right? The world's understandable and so problems can be solved. And I, I believed that as a philosopher and I, I believed it up until, you know, probably three, four, five years ago. And then, you know, there's all this work, you probably talked to Dan Gardner about some of this stuff, right? Um, the work that was done by guys like Jane, um, um, Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky, all this stuff, which, which everyone sort of knows about now, we all talk about it, the, the, the cognitive biases and the heuristics and, and the sort of, um, you know, uh, error, error mechanisms or uh, biases that are built into our, our, our cognitive framework. Um, once you sort of start to see how those those work and how persist, persistent and endemic and uh, just the extent to which our, our rational faculties are just shot through with the biases and heuristics and, and uh, kludges that evolution has, has, has um, bestowed upon us, you sort of start to rethink this idea that the world is a rational place and we're rational beings. Um, in actual fact, we're, we're kind of just getting by. And what, what, what concerned me and what concerns me and, and what's, what kind of changed my mind on a lot of things about, especially about progress is that I, I no longer have faith that, um, you know, we'll be able to sort of just reason our way out of our difficulties um, because I see a lot of things in our environment right now, online in particular, but also just our, our built environment, um, being designed to take advantage of the um, the the the, uh, the biases that are that are in our in our brains, the and so on. And I, I think about everything from you know the way IKEA is designed, uh, or or supermarkets to to the way Amazon or Netflix feed you feed you uh, their, their recommendations. Right, this is all stuff that's designed to basically take advantage of. Um, the, the 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 problems in your brain, right? They're they're not rational yeah. um, rationality maximizing institutions. In fact, they just do the opposite. They basically make us stupider. And so so, um, what we what we need, and ideally what we would rely on, right, are uh, experts uh, and experts embedded into institutions that are capable of learning from experts, building on expertise, and implementing those things. But unfortunately, we live in a world that is uh, hostile to expertise, hostile to institutions, and where experts themselves um, have unfortunately become, um, not just occasionally, but sort of too often than not, um, um, embedded in, 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 in political, um, uh, political dynamics that, that undermine their own capacity and their own, their own legitimacy. So that's, that's, a, that's a big mouthful of things, but I think, I think uh, I'm, very, I'm very, very pessimistic about, about a lot of this stuff right now. Yeah, I hear what you're saying about expertise, right? That it does feel like there are people, and it's not expertise because they've necessarily gone to the fanciest of schools. It's more like expertise 
in the form of practice as well. Like it may include fancy schools, but it also, you know, is built on practicing the discipline, just like an athlete, um, you know, someone who's first in, you know, spotting biases and, uh, you know, challenging data to get at, you know, the best evidence uh, are disciplines. um, And some people are going to be better at it than others. And practice is a, is a great proxy um, for what's better, but you're quite right. There, there is, um, there, there, there's a reluctance to accept expertise and, uh, and a certain visceral thrill uh, associated with, um, pointing out a hypocrisy, which then is leveraged to demonstrate, oh, and therefore they must be wrong about other things. You know, I, I, I believe in conflict of interest, for example, you know, I'm, I'm a lawyer. I, you know, I appreciate conflicts of interest, but I do feel in some ways, you know, we really weaponize those to, um, to discredit. And that's just, you know, one, one, one example of, uh, of, of the tools, uh, of discrediting. Um, so, uh, and this is not the best form question, I'll, I'll admit, Andrew, but, but one of the things that I was kind of asking myself was you talk about sort of the alt-right politics and, and control left politics is maybe the pathway, um, out of this, uh, conundrum you know, trying to embrace that mushy middle that does include some level of, uh, of contradiction that, that, that it's really trying to, you know, marry expertise with, you know, people's views that aren't necessarily neat and tidy because we're human beings. And why would we hold ourselves to being, you know, uh, 100% pure in, in our thoughts? You're, you're kind of like pointing at the solution, right? Um, and I, th- I think that's obviously right. Uh, where in the sense that that's, that's where we want to get to. The question is, how do we get there? How do, how do we get to a place where um, there's enough um, goodwill on, on all sides that there will be this combination of trust and expertise, um, but acceptance of fallibility, right? Right. Um, and uh, that's like a really uh, narrow beam to stand on, right? <laughs> um, and, and it's very easy to push it, someone off in one direction or the other, right? So you start trusting experts and suddenly you have um, what some people call the doc-docracy, right? Where you just sort of hand things over to uh, the, the, the doctors and they just tell you what to do, right? But of course, nobody trusts doctors and everyone's <laughs> fallible, right? Uh, but once you admit fallibility, then it becomes, well, the experts don't know what they're doing, right? They're just making it up yeah. as everyone else. And they're making it up not just because they're making mistakes, but because they have private interests or because they love the lockdown or what have you, right? Um, and so, so to get to that, that sort of mushy middle where you accept both the, the virtues of expertise, but also, um, you know, indulge fallibility and permit it and allow sort of error correction, um, that requires a political culture of a certain kind, a pre-existing political culture of a certain kind, um, which itself is based on trust and a sense that you may be on the other side, but ultimately, you know, we're all trying to get to the same place. And, you know, hell's bells. Uh, do we have that political culture right now? I don't think we do. Um, and how do we get that? Um, I, d- I don't know. I honestly don't know. 
And I, but I, I, uh, all I can say is um, that if someone can point me where where this where this goes in a way that's you know how how to get to where you want to get to, I'd love to follow along. I just I just don't see it. Sign us up, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so let me put uh, in closing. Let me put the central question of the podcast to you. Um, do you truly value something if you're not thinking about how you could lose it? Uh, oh, yeah. Um, look, uh, you know, I, I wrote this book um, in, uh, not in a dark place, but certainly in, in, a, in a very skeptical and, and not optimistic place. Um, but, um, you know, if, if I thought the world was uh, going to hell in a handbasket in, in a really deep way, right, I, I, I would have trouble you know, living in the world right now because I've, I've got kids, I've got young kids, right? And um, I, I, would, I, I would bring more kids into this world. And I, I think there's nothing, there's nothing about what's ha- happening right now that should make anyone believe that life is not going to be worth living, that uh, it's going to be, uh, you know, terror and destruction and so on. Um, there's going to be happiness. There's going to be art. There's going to be uh, science. There's going to be uh, sports. There's going to be, you know, joy and everything. Um, I'm afraid. I'm afraid of where things are going, um, but uh, and I'm, I'm worried of where things are going. But um, ultimately, I, th- I think uh, if, to, to, if, if I understand your your, your question uh, properly, um, you know, li- life li- life was worth living two, three, four hundred years ago, and it will be li- worth living two, three, four hundred years from now. Um, and our the best thing we can do is just you know make the best of it. Which is a very, very poor way of, of, of ending things. Make the best yeah, of it. My grandmother. Yeah. Oh, eat what you can. <laughs> There's wisdom in these in these little uh, nuggets, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, Andrew, thank you for sharing all of your nuggets and more with us today. Really appreciate your thoughts. And, you know, this is this is a conversation I think we have to be having around all of our dinner tables because uh, I think there I think there is a way out of this, but but not if we don't talk about it. So thank you yeah, for your time. Today. That's a good way of putting it. Thank you, Jody. <laughs>